dive in though. Scenario one, your boss has a very short temper. Uh, They're persistently dragging you into their office to shout at you unfairly, uh, accusing you of being, you know, work shy. Maybe your appearance is kind of slightly bedraggled in their opinion. What should you do? A, you should give as much as you get and shout back with equal strength, being unfairly, uh, equally unfair. So that's A. B, you should take it and walk out of the office, apologise and never say anything to anyone. Or C, you should report what has happened to whatever it is, HR or, or whoever it is in your particular workplace and go through the appropriate discipline procedures. So that's A, give as much as you get, shout back and so on. You should take it, walk out of the office, that's B. Or C, report what has happened to HR and go through the appropriate discipline procedures. A, B or C, do mark it down as the quiz begins. Our second scenario is this. Okay, you go out for drinks after work and the topic of conversation turns to some of the radical religions of the time and religions in general and people's beliefs. And you are questioned and you answer truthfully that you are a Christian, that you regularly attend a church. And as the night goes on, a couple of people, as the drinks get flowing, they mock you and it gets worse and worse and worse. And they even then get you to stand up in the pub and begin to berate you. And it gets even worse that the whole pub begins to laugh at you as this goes on. And someone gets out their phone and puts it on YouTube as well. And the comments just mock and mock and mock. What do you do? A. You remain quiet, sit down when they've finished. B. You take them to court and legitimately do so for defamation of character and religious intolerance. Or C. You start the pub brawl and kick their heads in. <laughs> a, B, or C. Tim, I know you're tempted with C, but uh, uh, just a little clue there. Okay, scenario three. Scenario three. Your close friend invites you um, around on a Sunday afternoon, and they're doing a bit of gardening. They're clearing out their gardening. It's, uh, their garden, it's, it's back-breaking work. But you agree to help. You've got an hour that you can go around. And you say, I'll give you an hour. During that hour, it's clear that there was no way that the work would ever get done in just one hour. And they admit that all along, they kind of assumed that if you would come, you're the soft touch, you're the Christian, you'll probably get three hours out of you just because, you know, that's the way you are. Easily manipulated. What do you do? A... Take the spade that you're using and throw it through the patio window in defiance. (laughs) B, do you offer to stay until the work is done in its entirety? Or C, do you do the one-hour greed and then stop? We'll come back to those at the end and see if you're right or wrong, according to God's word. But justice is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because I think we all want it. So what on earth is Jesus saying in these just short verses that we've heard read from Fiona just a moment ago? At times, you kind of think he must be a little bit naive. Certainly he seems impractical, doesn't he? If you were to put this, uh, and put this out and work it out in your life. I mean, as you heard it read, were some of you not thinking? I've had a couple of conversations with some of you this week, and I kind of might hear in your heads, do you really know the person I work with? 
Isn't that what you're thinking? The scary thing that Jesus does know, he completely knows. He knows you and your boss and your work colleagues and the situations you find yourself in, he knows them better than you know them yourselves. He knows what you think and say about your boss, whether that is an external dialogue or an internal one as well. He knows what you would do with that spade, even in your mind, when your friend says, oh yeah, it only takes three hours. See, Jesus knows and he teaches into this most difficult of areas with a simple teaching, but it's, it's very practically applied, isn't it? As Christians, I think we really need to hear this one. Uh, like many of the other illustrative teachings that we've gone through in this amazing chapter, this subject we need to be, and we can be, I think, incredibly distinctive, attractively so, in a very dark world. I mean, just look at the kind of litigious, vengeful, retaliatory culture around us. Here's a one for you lawyers out there. Uh, did you know that the number of lawyers is growing at four times the rate of population at the moment? Isn't that incredible? And did you know that the number of lawyers in this country has tripled over the last 30 years? An old friend who's a, a, a lawyer appeared on the programme on ITV this morning. Uh, I, don't, I don't watch it, but I saw it on uh, YouTube, this little clip. And he was there with... Holly, uh, whatever her name is, and uh, Philip uh, Schofield. And they were, he was there for a phone-in as a, as a lawyer. And people could call in and ask him various legal questions that he would endeavour to answer. One woman wanted to know what legal rights she had because her next-door neighbour's children were noisy. She wanted a retaliatory step in order to you know, stop this noisiness. And this, the essence of her question was... Could she have them banned legally from their own garden because they were disturbing her peace? Now, my friend did very, very well not to laugh. Um, but she was angry, clearly so. And she wanted to get her own back. That's a silly illustration, but I think we all realise, though that was an extreme case, I think we realise we have a frightening capacity for vengeance and retaliation. Now, we have seen some of that in the aftermath of Paris, haven't we? Yes, some have suggested that we need to fight terrorism with flowers. But many have celebrated the retaliatory force of the French war planes over Syria. And it's a big question in our parliament right now. And very interestingly, President Hollande in his speeches didn't feel it was necessary to suggest that the force used would be a measured an appropriate retaliation, which would make it, in terms of just war, as Aquinas wrote, and we hold in various treaties, it would make it a just war if it was an appropriate and measured retaliation. He simply vowed this, and I quote, that France will be pitiless in its response. And he added, France will be merciless towards the barbarians of Islamic State group. And the people cheered. Now, I'm not going to say if that was right or not. I think it's a really important application that we should talk about later. But it illustrates, I hope, a culture and a worldview that has a frightening capacity for vengeance and retaliation. 
Well, what does Jesus say? Well, firstly, as we've seen in all of these illustrations uh, within Matthew 5, he restates the Old Testament law, which is what we heard in those little short readings um, uh, that Ed read out a moment ago. After all, we've seen in Matthew 5, verse 17, that Jesus has not come to abolish that law, but rather to fulfill it. Look at verse 38 uh, of our passage. He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, what he's doing there is he's, there's two kind of main passages that we heard read there. And he's kind of bringing the, them together, the, the essence of those together. And he's quoting from what is known as the Lex Talionis. And I've written that down on your sheets there. And that is essentially the good law of retaliation. It is in fact the oldest law in the world. And whether you're a policeman or a lawyer or whatever you are, you live it out day by day. It goes back to the second century BC, lex meaning law, teleonus of retaliation. And essentially it was given as a law of mercy, a kindness in some ways, because it held back escalating feuds between parties, whether that's individuals or families. So it was, you know, I'll give an illustration. Someone stole an apple from a family's orchard. Well, what would the family do who had their apple stolen? They would then go and burn down the orchard of the other family of which the individual was uh, the stealing individual. And then what would they do? Well, they would burn down their house and all the property of the family that burnt down their orchard. And then the ones who had their house burnt down would then kill. And then they would kill. And then they would kill more and more and more. See, this law was given... To stop that escalation of retaliation. Genocide has even been justified in these terms before. So the Lex Telianus simply limited retaliation. It brought an equity to disputes. The eye for the eye. You know, if, and it actually was written down. If you poked out the eye of someone in rage, you would fairly and rightly lose your own eye. That was in the law. Now the problem came. And this is really interesting, sort of like in the centuries before Jesus. The problem came, and people disputed this, that, you know, what happens if you poke the eye out of someone and they've got a really good eye with 20-20 vision? And then you've got to lose your eye, and you're going, well, this one's blind, have this one. You know, or this one's a bit dodgy, have that one. You know, practically, you see, couldn't be worked out. You know, you might knock out the bright, white, gleaming tooth of someone in a fit of rage, And you might have this really rotten, painful tooth in the back of your mouth. And you say, oh, well, it's tooth for tooth. You have this one. They pull out, oh, that feels better. Thank you very much. I couldn't afford that dental work anyway. You see, it was the frustration of the Lex Talionis. So by the time that Jesus is teaching here, the Jews, what they've done is they've written all sorts of practical applications regarding this law. And essentially what they've worked out is a, is a kind of damages, reparations, financial kind of, it was like injury lawyers for you, but put in, down in Jewish documentation. So for example, if you, put, if you poked out the eye of a slave in a bit of a fit of rage, within their laws, it, it was understood that then that slave could be freed. That was the reparation, that was the, the retaliatory justice, if you like. And this, is law, this law is very much the underpinning of our legal system. And of course, uh, it was given to the Old Testament, uh, and it, to the judges particularly, to bring equity to the families of the people of God. 
And so what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's summarizing the law. He's restating it. He doesn't criticize it. He says this is a good law, essentially. He isn't suggesting let's get it done away with or anything like that. It brought stability to the world then. It brings stability to the world now, whether that's in civil law or international law. And it's being challenged very much right now with regard to Syria. But Jesus is, what he's doing here is expressing and addressing a specific abuse of this law. And we know from Jewish writings that in that period, scribes and Pharisees, they'd extended this good Old Testament law from the realm of the law court to that of personal relationships. They used it to essentially justify personal revenge. Even though elsewhere in God's law that was utterly forbidden. If you want to look at it later, Leviticus 19.18 is an obvious example of that. And so how does Jesus respond Well, once again, his teaching is utterly radical. In the law courts, Jesus upholds this law of fair retribution, but in the realm of personal relationships, particularly, as we'll see, in circumstances of persecution for your faith, Jesus commends his followers to love, to not get back justice, but to accept an injustice. And to not seek revenge. And it's summarized at the beginning. Have a look down at verse 39 there. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist the evil person. See, what Jesus is calling his followers to here is essentially a non-retaliation. And the little verb there, do not resist, it's in, it's, do not oppose. Do not set yourself in any way against Who? An evil person, he says. Now, Jesus is not, as it has been translated previously, saying, do not set yourself against the evil one, namely the devil or Satan. Nor is he suggesting that we do not resist or stand against his schemes or even the, the rebellion or sin within our hearts. The evil in our own hearts. We're to stand with all the strength we can against such rebellion in our lives, to honour Christ for everything that he's done for us. Absolutely. We are kingdom people. We fight our sin and the devil and all his works, Ephesians 6 and so on. And so what is Jesus saying here? He is specifically speaking of a person who is doing evil towards you. An old translation puts it this way. It says, the one who wrongs you. The implication is that as a believer... That is the evil person here. You see, Jesus is calling kingdom people, Christians, those who trust him, those who we've seen in Matthew 5, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are the peacemakers. He calls us in the realm of our personal relationships to not retaliate, to not seek revenge, however wronged you have been. You see, this Lex Tullianus, this law of retribution, points forward to this instruction now of Jesus. The law was originally given as a provision to curb the river of violence that flowed from men's hearts, John Piper wrote. Like other points Jesus has made in this sermon, this is a a legal principle that is now being overtaken by the Lord laid down by Jesus. Essentially, he sets the bar even higher 
The prophets foretold of a time where, when the hearts of men would be, if you like, transformed by the Spirit back in Ezekiel, that sins would be forgiven and obedience would flow from men's hearts, obedience to God. And the point is here that that time is dawning. And Christian, as Christ enters the world, therefore now, as we hear these instructions from Jesus, this non-retaliation should be viewed in that light. We are spirit-filled people if we're Christians here today. And we are to hear this and respond appropriately. Now, some interpret this uh, to be an instruction never to retaliate against any evil whatsoever. And very famously, the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy uh, wrote about this in his book, uh, What I Believe. And uh, he was an absolute pacifist in every area of his life. Interestingly, when I was reading about this, once his daughter and his son-in-law were attacked right in front of him on a legal dispute in their family. Actually brutally attacked. And he simply stood back and watched. Do not resist the evil person, he quoted. See, Tolstoy argued for pacifism from this verse, but I have to say there are better verses in the Bible if you were to argue for pacifism. But firstly, in so doing from this verse, he he ignores the sound convention of the day. And secondly, Jesus spells out these four illustrations and, and the kind of cultural restraints of it and how it ought to be lived out. And that's what we're going to look at now. So although these four illustrations are are culturally specific, from each of them there is a general principle that we ought to apply to our lives today. Let's look at each. So as you go to the end of verse 39, but I tell you, do not resist the evil person. How? That's the question we need to be asking. Well, look, it says, when we're insulted, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, We've got to be careful that we understand what's going on here. Think about it. The majority of people then, as they are now, are right-handed. So a right-handed person hitting you on the right cheek cannot be a slap like that. It must be a backhanded slap onto the right cheek of the opposing person. And Jesus is describing that backhanded slap here. And in those times, we must understand that culturally, that was considered a double insult. Essentially, the one slapping is saying, you, the one being slapped backhanded, you are inconsequential. You are nothing. Now, commentators agree, therefore, because of the context, it, it demands that Jesus, it's, he's speaking to believers, those with the spirit in our hearts, who are facing this because of their faith. We must also be clear that the law provided legal redress. That is, if you got a backhanded slap, you could go to the courts and say, I've got a backhanded slap and there's some witnesses here. I want some cash. Injury lawyers for you are right beside me here. But what does Jesus say? He says, you've got to suffer a personal insult for your faith. What should you do? You have rights within the law, but Jesus says, suffer the wrong. Don't assert your rights. In fact, turn so you can be slapped again. Why? What if someone at work, clearly because you're a Christian, begins to discriminate you? 
against you and humiliate you? What if they make you feel utterly small and insignificant, give you a, essentially a, a metaphorical backhanded slap for your faith? Do you suffer the discrimination? Do you swallow your pride? No, Jesus says you do more than that. You, you turn the other cheek. With the spirit in your hearts, you think what is best for them, not what is best for you. And let's be honest, that will leave you utterly, utterly vulnerable. But in so doing, you will point them to Christ, the one who ultimately turned the cheek and who suffered the ultimate discrimination for you. If you're being insulted, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Let's look at the second illustration. We're going to speed up now a little bit about being sued here in verse 14. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Again, we've got to understand what's going on here culturally. Within the law of the time, you could actually sue someone in a court of law for even the coat off their back. They would wear a tunic underneath, but the coat was kind of give them warmth and so on. But you could only sue them for the coat off their back till the end of the day. Because it was considered such a a thing of security for warmth, but also of dignity that you couldn't walk uh, around uh, in the evening without your coat. Again, Jesus knows this law. And he's asking his spirit-filled followers to go further. He's saying, if you're sued for your faith, for what you believe, he's saying, give me your coat. Ignore your legal rights. Give them your coat. And the point is made elsewhere in the New Testament a number of times. For example, Romans 12, 17 to 21. Let me read it. Paul tackles the issue there. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, look, please hear me right here. It does not mean that we can't ever seek justice. What he is saying here very clearly is that we cannot take the law into our own hands and look for retaliation ourselves. As Christians, we have committed to Jesus as Lord. He's king. He's the judge. Therefore, we're to not seek any personal revenge ourselves. In our personal relationships, we overcome evil with good and we let God be the judge and we commend Christ by doing that. Christ who suffered the most terrible injustice and whose first desire in that moment was to serve the one who was causing the injustice rather than serve himself. Let's look to illustration three now of being overworked in verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles, go with them two miles. And the issue here culturally would have, was the indignity of forced labour. The roots come from Persian culture 
where a Persian commander in the army could, could ask of anyone who was travelling through that land to say, look, can you pick up my stuff and, and walk with me two, two hours, three hours, even two days? And you legally couldn't say no. And the Jews absolutely hated this. They hated the fact that they could be exploited in that way. And they were being exploited because of who they were and what they believed. But once again, it isn't the actual work that is primary in Jesus' mind. It's the heart of the believer here. Let's take this into our realm, if you can. Uh, If you're asked to do a particular project that you really didn't want to do. Now, you know there are two ways that you can do that project. It's like saying to a child, go and clean your room. There's two ways you can clean your room, aren't there? You can do it with joy in your heart, or you can do it like throwing things into the wardrobe. No, I won't go there. But what about that project at work? You can do it whistling with joy, can't you? Or you can do it groaning with disappointment. And Jesus is calling here, uh, for us, if we're believers here today, to go the extra miles. But surely that must be a joyful response, rather than just begrudgingly. So that the person you see who's asking you to do those extra miles, who's forcing you, the reason we do that is so that they can begin to ask the questions, why? Why the joy? Now, if you think this is an unpractical, idealistic kind of uh, way of thinking, I want you to consider how Dietrich Bonhoeffer described this. He called it visible participation in his cross. That is, Jesus didn't retaliate on the cross. He did have the right, he did have the power of cross. Is this unpractical idealism? Well, history tells us otherwise. Many historians would argue that... uh, living in this non-retaliatory way was the primary reason for the conversion of a number of the Roman emperors and even Rome itself. Tertullian, a Christian apologist, wrote to the emperor in AD 197 saying, the more Christians are mown down by you, the more in number we grow and the blood of Christians is seed. Because Rome began to see that how Christians suffered and how they cared for others even under persecution, and how they didn't retaliate again and again and again, how they suffered indignity for their faith. When they're sued, even when they are abused for what they believe. And Tertullian's point and how we've seen in history is our response is critical. It is a light and salty response that can change hearts. We are called to a radical righteousness. That's what this whole chapter is about. And here we see it as a radical justice. Lastly, this illustration of being exploited in verse 42. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now this does not mean that any person that holds out their hand or their cap to us and says, oh, have you got some money that we can give them, you know, 10, 20, whatever pounds. If you did that and you walked down Oxford Street, you probably need a new mortgage by the end. You'd be bankrupt by the end of the day. Jesus isn't saying here, give to everyone and anyone. We, give, we are to give to the one who is trying to exploit. Exploit you. Probably because you're a Christian. Now it's a strange scenario. It was happening a lot then. 
Perhaps it's one that we will never face. And I've been trying to wrap my brain, what, what would be an obvious application of this for us uh, today? And I was just wondering, this may not be kind of a, a direct application, but it's somewhere, somewhere near it. it. I guess many of you guys, you get asked, you know, would you sponsor me? I'm doing a marathon, would you sponsor me? Uh, you, know, you know, I'm doing a whatever, triathlon, walking somewhere. Now, one or two distant friends have emailed me over the last couple of years. I've not spoken to them for ages. You know how you are? You get kind of trawled into these emails. Would you sponsor me for this? And they've emailed and said, I've emailed you because you're a Christian. And uh, I know you love to give. And uh, the implication is, you're a softie, and I think you will give. And you will not dare say no. Now, when I emailed back and said, stuff off, no way, that was wrong. But once I did sponsor a distant friend, more than they asked for, and I said something, it would be, like, it would be an absolute joy to give. And the response was striking. Now, I won't go into that um, in detail, but I thought it was a, a relatively a near illustration if you like let's try to draw these things together though before we mark our exam at the, as we looked at at the beginning I want to conclude like this I think as we finish as we look through those illustrations in a sense I want you to feel a tension if you've been awake you're probably going well what about this what about that there's a tension here because there are authorities there are legal frameworks to punish the evildoer and things that are wrong in our world, to bring to justice and to provide proper retribution. But the point that Jesus is making here with these four illustrations, it is not the duty of the individual Christian to retaliate. They should not repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. And we should feel a tension because we are both citizens of a world with a justice system and a state which longs to provide appropriate retribution. But we are also individuals that seek to honour Christ and his word. And therefore you should feel attention. And John Stott brilliantly in his commentary used this particular illustration. He asks, what happens if you, your house gets burgled tonight? Okay? And you catch the burglar. As a citizen of this state, you should ring up Tim and his giant guys. You can come down, lock him up, and do all the justice system, stuff like that. So that's one thing you should do. But at the same time, you should cook them a meal and make them a drink and love them. Do you see the tension? Give them your coat. You're a bit short. You must be if you're trying to burgle my house. Let me give you some cash. But at the same time, we're going to ring the police and we're going to seek justice appropriately, properly and appropriately. You see the tension? And so finally, it was a bit of a, a difficult quiz at the beginning because I kind of pushed you in, in particular ways. But let's have a look at it again just to see how you did. You know, scenario one, let's go back to that. Your boss has got a short temper, persistently drags it, unfairly accusing you, work, so on. What should you do? A, give you as much as you can and shout back with equal strength. No. Okay, But B, you should take it, walk out of the office, apologise and never say anything to anyone. There's a kind of yes and no to that one. There's a non-retaliation, yeah, you shouldn't retaliate. 
but never say anything to anyone? Well, it's not an appropriate justice for that individual. So C, yes, you should report what is happening to HR, but you let the state, you let the justice do the justice work. You don't seek retaliation. You don't go into their office later on and, you know, unscrew the wheels of their chair so when they, they fall over when they next sit, you know, or whatever you choose to do, you know. I've never done that. I've never done that. Okay. Scenario two, then. You go out for drinks after work and the topic of conversation turns to religion and all that kind of stuff. You end up on YouTube. That, by the way, all these are true of me. Apart from the YouTube bit. What should you do? Remain quiet, sit down when they've finished? Yes. Non-retaliation, no vengeance. B, you should take them to court legitimately for defamation of character and religious intolerance. Possibly. But I think it depends on your motive, which is what Jesus is really questioning here, isn't he? Are you doing it for reasons of love? Or just because you want vengeance. See, you should start pub rule. Well, no, I don't think you should do that one. Though I was tempted. Um, scenario three. You cl- your close friend around you on the, you know, the digging in the garden and so on. You should take a spade you're using and throw it through the patio window of defiance. Well, that went through my mind. B. Do you have to stay until the work is done? Yes, you should. Go the extra mile. It will speak volumes. No retaliation. No personal vengeance. Or do you do the one hour you agreed and then stop? I don't think so. Jesus is setting the bar really high here. And it's a radical justice. But it's one that commends him. Ultimately. The one who suffered the the most radically unjust thing ever I'm sure we've got lots to talk about lots of questions why don't I pray as we close Lord God and Heavenly Father I guess the the practical applications of this are going to be difficult for each of us to work out but we know our own hearts and we know the temptations that we feel especially when we suffer injustices maybe at work we're thinking right now of a a boss who's just a pain and nasty. Heavenly Father, please give us wisdom to apply these words in a way that glorifies and honours you and ultimately commends your Son, the Lord Jesus, to them. May we not bring what is right in the law courts into our personal lives. May we seek to love first and foremost and allow justice to take its right and appropriate course in the place which you have deemed appropriate, that is through the law courts and the state. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.